Hey friends, before we hop into today's episode, I just want to make sure you're aware of In His Image Wellness Collective. It is a group that I run where we are focusing on stewarding our wellness for the Lord. Yes, not chasing body image, not chasing scales, but really making decisions about our mental, emotional, physical, spiritual well-being with a kingdom lens. We do workouts, we do meal plans, we do devotions, we meet weekly for prayer via Zoom. It is incredible and you want to be a part of it. So make sure you send me an email and I'll give you all the details. All right, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Affirming Truths. I'm your friend and host, Carla Arges. This show is a safe place to share our struggles, grow in faith, and root our identity in Christ. My hope is that you will leave each episode feeling encouraged in your journey. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and it would mean the world to me if you would leave a review. I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hey guys, it is Carla here, and I am so excited over today's guest. There's not often a time that I've had a chance to interview someone who's actually had a direct impact on my life, so I am extra excited and extra nervous about this interview. As you guys know, I run a weekly Bible study group with some ladies on Saturdays. And before the summer, we did a study in Right Now Media based off of a book called Free of Me by Sharon Hottie Miller. And it just impacted me so much. And she has a new book out called The Cost of Control. And I am so excited to have Sharon with us here today. Hey, Sharon. Hi, it's great to be with you. And you are coming to us in the middle of a hurricane. So we appreciate your dedication <laughs> to be here and praying that God will keep our internet connection live. Yeah, I mean, we're in North Carolina, so it's not as dire as Florida, but we do get hurricanes here. So we'll see how it goes. All right. We're trusting <laughs> God. So thank you so much for being here. You really impacted me with free of me and really looking at how sometimes or oftentimes we make things about us. And the book Cost of Control seems to beautifully come out of that mm-hmm. and narrowing in on where we really need to free up some things. Mm-hmm. And I loved how at the beginning of the book, you really state like the illusion of control has a seeking refuge in a lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you expand on that a bit? Like, Mm -hmm. what is the lie? What is the illusion? Mm -hmm. How do we fall into this trap? Yeah. So I don't know if you had heard that term, the illusion of control before. It's a term that I had used in the past, but I did not realize it is an actual psychological term. Mm -hmm. And it's a term that was coined back in the 70s by a psychologist who was describing what is basically this human pathology where we will imagine we have control where we don't have any at all. And so, you know, funny examples of this are like athletes who have, you know, 
what is it? Superstitions about, you know, they wear the same socks through all yes. the playoffs, that kind of a thing. There was another really funny story. I can't remember if I included this in the book. I think I did about casino players, how they, when they want to roll a high number on the dice, they'll shake the dice harder. And when they want to roll a lower number, they'll shake the dice softer. <laughs> and that doesn't do anything, <laughs> you no. know? But it gives you this illusion of control. And so that's what we're talking about whenever we use this, this phrase, the illusion of control, is that we will imagine that we have control where we do not have any at all. And the reason that we do it is that it actually does help. It, it actually does make us feel better for a brief period of time. There's There's been other studies done that show that when you think you are in control of a situation, it doesn't matter if you actually are. If you simply think that you are, it will lower your anxiety. It will lower your depression momentarily for that moment. And so that's why we run you know, to this illusion is that it, it can actually make us feel better for a very brief moment. But because it's an illusion, because it's not real, Sooner or later, we are confronted with reality. That illusion will get shattered. We will have to face reality, but then we find ourselves completely unprepared for it because we've been retreating into this lie. And then that's when the anxiety spikes, doesn't it? We have this band-aid solution that's mm -hmm. momentary mm -hmm. that ultimately leads to higher anxiety. So mm -hmm. what's that connection between control and anxiety? Yeah. So anytime we try to control something that we cannot control, it actually makes our anxiety worse. And we can experience some success in control for a period of time. But as soon as we realize, actually, I'm trying to control this thing and it's not submitting to me, it actually ratchets up our anxiety even more. The thing that a lot of us get stuck in is this cycle where when we feel anxiety that can be caused by any number of things, we run to control in order to soothe that anxiety, but it only makes it worse. And that spiral is really what we saw so many people caught in at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, mm. we had this toilet paper hoarding, yeah. right? <laughs> Was did that happen in Canada as yes, well? Oh, yes. really? Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, we all were living in this very comfortable illusion of control, thanks to technology, thanks to science and medicine. We were living in this delusion that we were increasing in our mastery over the world. And while we do have more predictability, you know, than we've ever had, we have better medicine than we've ever had. We are still, you know, basically just as vulnerable to the unpredictability of the world as, you know, we ever were. It's not that we are, one of the things I say in the book is we thought that our control over the world had increased by miles when it had only increased by inches, mm. especially in comparison with God's, you know, it seemed like we were getting closer to him in terms of our sovereignty, but the pandemic was a really clear market correction in our minds that, oh, actually, no, we don't have nearly as much control as we thought that we did. And so that illusion of control was shattered by the pandemic. But instead of Christians drawing on the millennia of spiritual resources <laughs> available to us that have served 
all of our, you know, Christian brothers and sisters for the last 2000 years to confront pandemics, to confront, you know, war, plagues, you know, all of that. We went to the internet <laughs> and saw yes. other illusions of control. And so that's why we were researching, you know, we were scrolling, we were reading everything possible, looking for, okay, this, this failed me, but where else can I find certainty? Where else can I find predictability? And, and as we could see, that did not yield peace in anyone. You know, no one came from the internet feeling security and stability. They actually felt worse. And that is the control anxiety cycle that a lot of us get stuck in. And it takes us farther away from God, where we find the true peace and the true rest and the true mm -hmm. security that we're craving. Yes. So one of the things I was like a big aha wow moment for me in your book if you talk about the different areas we try to control, and some of those I knew, right? We try to control knowledge and power and money. But one of the ones that was new for me to hear in this context was shame. Mm. And that was a huge for me. I'm a product of childhood trauma. I have struggled through releasing shame. And I never really saw it in this context. Can you share with us how shame and control kind of work together? I'm really encouraged to hear you say that because that was also new to me as well, but I knew it would be important because of the ways that I'd seen it play out in my husband's mm -hmm. own life. So I, as you mentioned, I talk about different tools of control essentially, and one of them is shame. And we use shame to control other people. You know, it's a very effective, you know, it, it, for behavior modification, shame works really well. It works well in parenting. It works well in the church, but it, it also doesn't work well in, in achieving its, you know, what we really want, which is in Christians, people to become authentic disciples of Jesus, not just doing mm -hmm. what they should do because they feel shamed into it. Same with parenting. But another aspect of shame, and, and what I've looked at in each of those chapters is not just how we use those things to control other people, but how we use these things to feel in control. And that is going back to the illusion of control, arguably more important. That's very often the thing that we are after is not to control, but simply to feel in control. That mm -hmm. feeling is huge. And what was new to me was the way that shame can be put into service to, to making the world feel more predictable. And the way that I learned about this was through my husband. I write about this in the book that my husband is an adult child of an alcoholic. And one really common consequence of children who grow up in homes like that is they become codependent. They really struggle with codependency. And the reason for that is they are told by their parent, I am acting the way that I am. The reason I'm acting badly right now is because of you, mm -hmm. my child, you, you, if you would behave, if, if you would be quiet, you know, whatever it is, then I wouldn't respond so badly. What that little child doesn't know is no, you are inebriated right now. Like that's why you're, or you're, you know, whatever it is, that's why you're behaving this way. A child doesn't have the resources to know the difference between a parent who is sober and one that is intoxicated. They just know they're being told by their parent, 
this is my fault. I have caused you to respond this way. And what that implicitly communicates is that the child is actually responsible for the anxieties, anger, emotions of the parent. And that is why so many adult children of alcoholics become codependent is they enter into their adult lives believing they are responsible for the you know, emotional worlds of the people around them. Now, where shame comes into this is that another level of this is, is for children as they're processing, this must be my fault. They're believing this not only because their parent is telling them this, but they're also motivated to believe this because the alternative that this isn't my fault, that my parent is erratic and unpredictable because of something that has nothing to do with me is actually scarier. Mm. It means you're completely vulnerable and nothing is in your control. Mm. But this shame narrative that says, actually, this is your fault which means if you change your behavior, you can prevent this from happening again. And so there's a sense in, in which shame makes the world, it, it simultaneously tears you down, but it makes you feel a sense of agency in the world around you. It's, it's, it's a lie. <laughs> you know? yeah. You're yeah. not responsible for people. You can't control other people's yeah. emotional worlds, but it, it actually helps you to feel a little bit more in control in an uncontrollable world. And so that was very much happening in my husband, especially with our church. He, he would be the first to say that he had become codependent with our church. Mm -hmm. And he felt like he, he was responsible for how everyone felt in our church. And so it was producing a lot of shame, but it also gave him a sense of control. Well, I can, I can control, you know, the people around me. And so I would have never thought of this. It is so deeply counterintuitive to someone who was not raised in a home like that. But for my husband seeing the epiphany that that was, I thought, I need to write about this. Yeah. I need to share this because this will resonate with other people. I'm so glad you did. And it's, it's like choosing between two hearts. Right. It is hard to feel emotionally responsible for people, but mm -hmm. it gives you that sense of control. Mm -hmm. It's also hard to release and surrender the fact that you don't. And right. <clears throat> sorry, it, it's, it's choosing your heart, which hard path is going to have the outcome that God designs for you. Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah. so glad you shared that in the book. Another thing you shared when you were kind of talking about the cost of control. And one thing that I hear a lot from my audience is this sense of burnout. Mm. Your listeners are exhausted. Mm -hmm. They are overwhelmed. They are tired. A lot of it comes down to the big driver of what will people think of me or how can I control this narrative about my life? And they are burnt out. How does being burnt out relate to this constant mm -hmm. need for control? Mm -hmm. Well, control lies to us and says that, you know, first of all, you can control everything that's happening in your world. You can control your circumstances. You can control your kids. You can control what's happening at work, whatever it is. And the flip side of that is if you stop, if you rest, if you have boundaries, if you say no, then everything's going to fall apart. 
And I can speak to this again as a pastor. My my husband struggles with this form of control more than than I do. I have my my other forms, but for him, and and again, this is coming from like adult child of an alcoholic. This is very normal. He has this hero complex, you know, that that he needs to take care of everyone. He needs to take care of our church. And so if he stops, if he takes a break, then the whole thing is going to fall apart. And theologically, he would be able to say, I know that that is not true. But functionally, there was a period of time at the beginning after we planted our church that he was actually living that way. And the thing that is so insidious about this form of control is that it makes you look like a really good pastor or it makes you look like a really good mom. You know, you're you're so conscientious. You're you're taking care of everyone or, or it makes you look really sacrificial. Like, look at how she's laying herself down, you know, for everyone in her family. But this is actually about control. <laughs> and if you if you are acting out of that place where I can't stop. I'm the one that's, you know, I'm like Atlas with the world on my shoulders. Then that is a recipe for burnout because you were not designed to live that way. That's not the right order of things. And and that's why God's command to Sabbath is not just a gift to us, but is, is actually necessary for human flourishing because it reminds us of the right order of things that I can stop. I can take a break. There's only one person in the entire universe that if he stops, you know, raining that everything will fall apart and that is God and God alone. Mm. And so Sabbath reminds us of that truth. And, and we need that reminding more than anyone else in our lives. But sometimes the people in our lives need that remind, like our church needs to know, like we are not Jesus. We cannot be yeah. your savior. We need, we are human. We need to honor those limitations. And as soon as we stop honoring those limitations, we will burn out very quickly. And there's this idea in society that we wear busyness as a badge of honor, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're, we're, we're valuable and we're worthy if we are producing, if we have everything lined up, all the T's crossed and I's dotted, somehow we get our value and worth. And that's really a misplace of our identity and trying to control that in other ways. A hundred percent. So let's get a little personal for a second. Okay. Sorry for my raspy voice. I feel like Phoebe from Friends. Do you know <laughs> that episode? Smelly Cat? Oh. Um, <laughs> where do you right now, Sharon, struggle with control? And how are you how are you overcoming it? And I'll share, mm-hmm. I'll share mine too. You don't have to share alone. Mm-hmm. So I continue to struggle with it. My husband and I lead our church together and we have different lanes where he has the areas of the church that he's over and I have the areas of the church that I'm over. But because we are accessible to one another 24-7, it's really easy to bring up work-related stuff when we're not in a staff meeting together. Mm. And because he's my husband, it's also easy to push him in a way that I would not some other person who was, you know, another staff, you know, that, that it would feel manipulative or it would feel inappropriate. But because it's my husband, it's we're just having a conversation here, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Yeah. 
And I have a very strong personality. I'm very strong with my words. I have a section of the book where I talk about different forms of power and and one form of power that I think a lot of women wield is verbal power. You know, we are usually not bigger than our husbands, but our words, we're very strong with our words. And so I know how to move him without yelling at him. You know, I'm not manipulating him. I'm not threatening him. I'm not raising my voice at all, but I know just the right way to say exactly what I need to, to get him to make the decision that I think he should make. It could even just be the way I ask a question, you know, why, why did this happen this way? You know, when I ask it a certain way, he kind of knows this isn't a genuine question. This is a rhetorical question Mm -hmm. that is implying it's, it's carrying a lot of freight behind it. And so that is something that I have really in the last year had to get honest about and work on because, and and this goes back to the title of the book, anytime you try to control something that God has not given you to control, it always comes with a cost. Mm -hmm. And this is not an if there are not loopholes to this. It's a win. It's, it's been written into the fabric of creation from Genesis three onward. Anytime you try to control something you were not meant to control, you're defying the order of creation and you're, there's going to be brokenness. And Mm -hmm. I've seen that in, in my marriage, thankfully nothing catastrophic, but I think that if this had been allowed to go on for decades, it would have very slowly undermined the foundation of our marriage. And, and that's the really deceptive thing about control is you don't always see the fallout right away. You, yeah. you might not see it for years. And, and that's something that really sobers me when it comes to my children, because I, I'm called to influence my children. I'm called to teach them, to guide them, to discipline them, but I I am not called to control them. And if I don't honor that distinction, I won't see the consequences for possibly 10 to 20 years. And so that is very, (laughs) that's very, very sobering. Uh, But for me, it's definitely still something I am working on as I lead our church with my husband. Well, you just touched on where I'm working on right now. I have a 14-year-old. He just started high school. And I have found myself very triggered by this transition into high school. High school was a very difficult time for me. Homelessness, expulsion, drugs, sex, teenage pregnancy. It was a very devastating, heavy time for me. And I have this fear now that my son is going into high school And he is going to do all these terrible things and all these terrible things are going to be done to him. And I recognized, and we're only four weeks into the school year here in Canada. I recognized that every conversation we were having, it was like, I was trying to download all my wisdom and everything Mm -hmm. in a way that I would control his decisions and control his choices. And the cost of that, like you said, and here I was starting to see it immediately was relational. He was starting to shut down. He didn't want to have conversations with me. And if you're a parent of a teenager, you know how important it is to keep those lines of communication open. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really going through this process of surrender. Like Mm -hmm. he's not mine. He's God's. I've got to surrender. I've got to trust. Mm -hmm. He's not coming from the same childhood I came from. Mm -hmm. Things are different. Mm -hmm. And 
that surrender. And that has been, you know, a place where your book's really been speaking to me too, while I'm trying to surrender this big, big control issue with me right because I want him to make all the right choices but Mm -hmm. like you said we can't control that all we can do is influence and guide Mm -hmm. now your book ends with hope yes your book doesn't just talk about all of the struggles of control you talk a lot about this idea of agency which I would love for you to explore and then the promise of God. So what is agency? How does that differ from control? Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, my internet just like blipped for a second. <laughs> I was like, the power is staying on, so I don't know what's happening. Um, so a big distinction that I make, and this is kind of the arc of the book, is that God does not give us control, but he does give us agency. And we see distinction between Genesis 1 and 2 versus Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reach for control. They defy the boundaries that God has given them in the garden, and they reach for more knowledge, more more power than he had designed for them to have. But before that moment in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not as if Adam and Eve are puppets or robots or slaves. You know, they, they're not prisoners. They have a lot of power. They have influence. They have freedom. And the word that I give to that is agency. And I define agency. It's a psychological term, but I think it's a really helpful one to describe what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is the power to influence yourself and your circumstances. And the operative word there being influence, not control. Mm. And the distinction there is is one of honoring your, your boundaries, that you are not in charge of outcomes, but you certainly have influence along the way. And when we see, when we look in Genesis 1 and 2, we see them exercising agency in so many different things. You know, they're, they're naming and, and they're, they're ordering and they're creating and there, there's so many different ways that they have agency. And so the question in my mind became, okay, how do we put down the power that God has not given us to pick up the power that he has? And so agency is is a huge power available to us in situations where I can't control the outcome here, but what agency is available to me? Because too often we say sort of let go and let God, and that's not exactly what God asks of us. Yes, he asks us to surrender, but we still have work to do. You know, Mm -hmm. he invites us to partner with him. You know, you, you don't just say to God, you know, here's my son, like I'm just tossing him up in the air for you to catch. No, God invites you to continue parenting him, to mm-hmm. love him, to pray for him. You know, there there's forms of stewardship there. So that's one power that is available to us. Another power available to us by the power of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And self-control is not simply controlling the self. It, it's not I'm in charge of me. But whenever scripture talks about self-control, this has more to do with discernment and doing what is wise in situations. And Tim Keller describes that really beautifully as choosing the important rather than the urgent. So, you know, example of that is I might, you know, urgently want these shoes at, at Nordstrom, 
but the important thing is to honor my budget. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's a matter of self-control. Yes. And so, you know, self-control is not simply just doing whatever you want. And so in situations where maybe you feel out of control, self-control asks, what is the wise response in this situation? What is the godly response? What is the holy response here? So we have self-control available to us. And then the final power available to us, and, and the title is a little bit misleading because it makes it sound like it's like one power, but it's actually, there's multiple tools available to us. But the main one, the most important one is Jesus. And the reason why is that we, you know, live in this Genesis three world, but we were created for Genesis one and two. And we, we yearn for that stability. We, we yearn for that brokenness and, or we yearn for that world without brokenness, but we have been equipped with agency. We've been equipped by the power of the Holy spirit with self-control, but because of sin, we still don't always choose to exercise our agency. We don't always choose mm -hmm. to exercise our self-control. We ultimately cannot fix the world that we live in. And so God sent Jesus to restore it for us. And at the end of the day, that is our, our hope is, th yeah. is that God is making all things new, that, that one day all the you know sad things will come untrue by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's so much, so much hope in that. Yes. And I love how you brought in the word steward. I talk about this a lot on the podcast that God is calling us to steward our lives and looking at in this decision, in this next choice that I have in forgiveness or my reaction or my words, how can I give God the glory in this next choice? How can I do that? Because what he's really after is just a heart of obedience. The yes. results are his the outcome is his. He didn't mm -hmm. call us to results. He mm -hmm. called us to obedience and that right. does involve action and partnership and stewardship. So I love mm -hmm. that you said that. It has been such a joy talking with you today, Sharon. I could I could have you over for dinner if you lived closer and just chat with you all night. I was just, Aww. you have so much wisdom and so much insight. And I so appreciate how you're bringing this to, to women. And I love how it is not common sense, but you, you, you use common language, you use accessible examples. It's not high theology, although rooted in, in, in biblical truth, it is anyone can pick up this book and be touched by it and understand it and see God in it. And I really appreciate how you bring those things together with ease and grace and challenge our hearts, um, to be who God's created us to be. Thank now, you. is there anything else you want to share? Where can people get your book? Where can people find you? I'll put this all in the links in the in the, in the show notes, but you can buy my book anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, you know, anywhere else. And then I'm most active on Instagram. So just Sharon H. Miller. All right. Thank you so much, Sharon, and especially during a hurricane joining I know, us I'm here. so glad we made it. We made yes. it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today. I hope we're already friends on social media, but if we're not, come find me on Instagram at Carla Arges or at Affirming Truth. Can't wait to see you back here next week. Bye, friends.